Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. All right. A paradox is a seemingly absurd proposition that when investigated may prove to be well-founded or true. Now, when I think of paradox, I think back to my freshman psychology class in college, and I learned about something called the Abilene Paradox. Have any of you heard of that? Maybe a few of you. Wonderful. Well, this paradox was based on an article written in 1974 by a man who was visiting his parent, his his wife's parents in Coleman, Texas. Now, this always resonated with me because my grandparents lived in Coleman, Texas. So I often thought of this as my dad having written this article about this encounter. And this is how it goes. On a hot afternoon in Coleman, Texas, a family is comfortably playing dominoes on the porch until the father-in-law suggests that they take a 50-mile trip to Abilene for dinner. The daughter says... Sounds like a great idea. Her husband, despite having reservations, in order to please his wife, says, that sounds good to me. The mother-in-law, thinking that her daughter and son-in-law want to go, says, you know, I haven't been to Abilene in a long while. The drive is hot, dusty, and long. When they arrive at the cafeteria, the food is as bad as the drive. They arrive back home four hours later, exhausted. One of them dishonestly says, wasn't that a great trip? (laughs) And then one by one, they reveal that they all would have rather stayed home, but went along because they thought everyone else wanted to go. The father-in-law then says he only suggested it because he thought everyone might be bored. So the group sits back, perplexed that together they decided to take a trip to Abilene that none of them wanted. So the Abilene Paradox explains a very human tendency. Doing what you think everyone else wants to do, but in the end, getting what no one wants. This is deeply convicting because it's so true. Well, the book of Daniel presents another kind of paradox. Daniel is a Christ figure in the Old Testament. He is a type or a person that reflects the reality of Jesus in shadow form. And as an exile in a foreign land, Daniel gives us a glimpse into the upside-down kingdom of God. Daniel believes and does things that don't make sense, yet are profoundly true. He demonstrates believing and doing the hard things that even his peers wouldn't choose because he has what so many others want, a personal relationship with his God. So the Daniel paradox is exactly the opposite of the Abilene paradox. Doing what you think no one else wants to do, but in the end, getting what everyone wants. So let's consider Daniel's paradoxical life this morning. He, like Jesus, showed strength in weakness, exultation in lowliness, and victory in death. Now, On the back of your handout, you have a Nancy Guthrie-inspired chart that I came up with. If you want to follow along as we compare Daniel and and Jesus this morning. So let's start with strength and weakness. 
This comes from Daniel chapters 1 and 3. Now, I'd love for you to also have your Bible opened. If you would like to follow along with me, I'm going to summarize some things. I'm going to give some, some verse references. They will not be up on the screen. All right, in Daniel chapter 1, we learn that around 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, this wasn't the ultimate destruction that happened in 586 BC, but this foreshadowed it. He took some really important vessels from the temple back to Babylon, and he took the first wave of exiles with him, healthy, strong, and learned teenagers to be in his service as the king. So Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah were among the ones separated from their families as young boys. Now, what a frightening experience this must have been for these guys, ripped from the comfort of their homes and taken to a strange land by a king who wanted to butter them up and teach them to love the ways of Babylon. Well, one of the king's strategies was to give these four guys new names, names that paid homage to the Babylonian gods. So they were to be called Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These four guys, however, they were not deterred by this strategy. They retained their Jewish identities by sticking together and keeping their Hebrew names. I love the meaning of their Hebrew names. This is on the other side of your, of your notes, so you don't have to write these down. But Daniel, Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means God has been gracious. Mishael means who is like our God. And Azariah means God is our help. Isn't that awesome? Their very names would remind themselves and the rest of the Jews in exile for decades to come who their God was and what he was like. Well, in addition, these boys, they could have tried to acclimate to their new surroundings by living it up in the king's palace, eating and drinking the allotment of food and wine given by the king to all of the exiles. But we read in, in chapter 1, verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel gathered his three friends, and together these four chose to only eat vegetables and drink water during their time of training, a way of protecting themselves from the temptation of assimilating to Babylonian culture. So they used their distinctive diet to retain their distinctive identity as Jewish exiles. Well, logic says that this would have made them physically weak compared to all the other guys who ate the meat and drank the wine. But in chapter 1, verse 15, it says, At the end of ten days, it was seen that these four were better in appearance and fatter in flesh isn't that great? Than all the youths who ate the king's food. And then in, in chapter 1, verse 20, it says, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. These four guys didn't find strength in food, in luxury, nor in their own independence. 
But in their weakness, they found their strength in God and in one another, unwilling to assimilate to the world around them. Well, like Daniel, Jesus was separated from his family as a young boy. Back in Jerusalem, he was found in the temple of the king of kings. And even though he was the son of a Nazarene carpenter, Jesus retained his true identity, telling his parents that he had to be about his father's business. In his 33 years of life, Jesus could have set himself up in a palace with fine food and wine, but instead he lived 30 years as a simple carpenter, and then for three years he walked and served with this small community of disciples as a homeless vagabond. He found strength not in wealth nor independence, but in the comfort of his father and the community of believers unwilling to assimilate to the Roman world around them. Jesus prayed for his disciples and for us in John 17, verses 14 and 15. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Well, back to Daniel, chapter 3. These four friends get separated in their roles and their responsibilities to the king. Daniel becomes a dream interpreter for Nebuchadnezzar, while the other three remained in his court. When Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah refused to worship this idol of Nebuchadnezzar that he had built of himself, they were threatened to be thrown to their death in a furnace of fire. Confident in their God and in his character, they said in chapter 3, verse 17, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, even if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. When they were thrown into the fire, Nebuchadnezzar was terrified to see that not only did these three guys not burn up, they were walking in the fire, but they were joined in this fiery furnace by a fourth man who appeared like the son of the gods. I can't even imagine what that looked like to him. What do you think? Do you think this could have been Jesus walking with them in the fire? I think that's a pretty cool thought. No matter what, God was certainly present with them in the fire, showing them his strength in their weakness. Well, Jesus demonstrated this same strength and weakness in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death. Physically exhausted and in emotional torment, he begged his father to take the cup from him that he was about to drink, torture and death on a Roman cross. His declaration was similar to these boys when when they faced the fiery furnace in Luke 22, 42, when he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus was resolved to trust his father, no matter what the outcome. Well, next, we'll see in Daniel chapters 2, 4, and 5, that Daniel was exalted in lowliness. In chapter 2, 
we see Daniel given a special ability by the Lord to interpret dreams, interpreting this troubling dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about the content of this dream, but for the sake of time today, I want to focus on Daniel's humility when confronted by the king's fury. So after this dream, Nebuchadnezzar got pretty upset, and he was ranting about his desire to kill all of the wise men on his staff because they could not tell him what his dream meant. Now, even Daniel didn't know what the dream meant at this time. But in chapter 2, verse 14, it says that Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. So he requested an appointment with the king to interpret his dream before he knew what the interpretation would be. And then, like before, Daniel gathered his three friends to him to pray. Together they, they sought God, they sought his mercy, and God revealed the interpretation of the dream to Daniel. So in chapter 2, verse 20, I love how Daniel praises God here, saying, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. So God exalted Daniel in his humility. King Nebuchadnezzar said to him, Wow, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. And he promoted Daniel to, rule, to be a ruler over the whole pro province of Babylon. And he made him chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel didn't let that go to his head. He appointed his three friends over the, the affairs of the province of Babylon while he remained in the king's court. Such an act of humility. Then in Daniel chapters 4 and 5, we see Daniel confront the pride of two very powerful kings, King Nebuchadnezzar and later King Belshazzar, by interpreting another dream and then this even crazier miracle, a giant hand writing words on a wall. Now both of these incidents led to the humiliation of these powerful kings. Nebuchadnezzar, he lost his kingdom, and he was forced into homelessness where he ate grass like an ox and had hair as long as eagle's feathers and nails like bird claws. Doesn't this sound insane? I mean, I think he, he really did look insane. But this humiliation brought repentance as Nebuchadnezzar turned to the Lord and was restored. Look at chapter 4, verse 37, where he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. King Belshazzar, on the other hand, was told in chapter 5, verses 25 to 28, that he had not humbled his heart, but rather had lifted himself against the Lord of heaven. So he was killed and King Darius took his place. Well, like Daniel, Jesus, in his humanity, was given special revelation by his Father for his works of ministry. In John chapter 12, verse 49, it says, Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. 
Jesus also frequently confronted the pride, not only of the religious leaders of his day, but even of his disciples. Tim talked about this Sunday. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 through 28, Jesus confronted his disciples, saying, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus practiced what he preached all the way to the cross. He humbled himself to the threats and the accusations of the Pharisees. And even from the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. I wonder if Daniel, when he left home as a teenager, thought that he would be in Babylon serving four different kings over seven decades. In faith, he humbly served as God had called him to do for as long as he called him to do it. And he was exalted by God and by each of the kings that he served. Well, Paul describes Jesus' humble service in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 10, perhaps many of our favorite verse in scripture. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, finally, we're going to see Daniel experience victory in death in Daniel chapter 6. Now, under the reign of King Darius, this was the third of the four kings that Daniel would serve, Daniel found great favor. He had faithfully served Nebuchadnezzar, faithfully served Belshazzar, and now in his old age, probably 80 to 90 years old, he's one of three right-hand men to the king. But he was targeted by these jealous officials that were under his leadership. Knowing that he prayed daily to God, these guys tricked Darius into issuing a binding edict that said that anyone who prays to any god or human being other other than Darius in the next 30 days shall be thrown into the lion's den. Well, quickly these men accused Daniel of being against the king because they knew that he prayed three times a day to his god. Now, Darius knew this about Daniel, but he also knew that Daniel was loyal to him as the king. He wasn't threatened by Daniel's prayers. In fact, Darius feverishly tried to save Daniel, but in the end stayed true to the edict and threw Daniel into the lion's den. But even so, Darius appealed to God when he said to Daniel in chapter 6, verse 16, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. He desperately wanted that to happen. This reminded me of when Jesus was falsely accused by the Sanhedrin in Mark 14. He remained silent and gave no answer. But when the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? He said, I am. And he was condemned to death. When they handed him over to the Roman governor Pilate, he feverishly tried to set Jesus free by offering up Barabbas to the people to be crucified instead. 
But eventually he washed his hands before giving in to the Jewish people who demanded that Jesus be the one who was crucified. Well, when Daniel was thrown into that pit back in chapter 6, verse 17, it says, A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he, like Pilate's wife in Jesus' story, couldn't sleep at all that night. Now I wonder what life was like for a 90-year-old man in a dark pit with hungry lions breathing down his neck. Don't you think that he would have had the right to say, Really, God? After all that I have given up, all that I have done for you, this is my retirement package? I think perhaps like Habakkuk, this could have been Daniel's how could you God moment. We don't know what he thought, but I know that Daniel knew the character of his God. He and his friends had experienced his power and his mercy together time and time again over the years. I wonder if Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah told Daniel about their experience in the fiery furnace. And I wonder if that, uh, that encouraged him as he faced the pit of lions. Now, if you're in this room today and you are in your eighth or ninth decade of life, I want you to know that God is not finished with you yet. You may be in a season of trial or disappointment like Daniel, but what if that's because God has great confidence in you? Hasn't he proven himself to be faithful to you over these many decades? Perhaps he wants you, like Daniel, to testify to his goodness from your pit. Well, I also wonder when it was that Daniel realized that this angel had shut the lion's mouths. We don't know. I like to imagine that it was very early on and that he sang worship songs into the night to the background vocals of those lion's purrs. We don't, know, we don't know what happened during the night, but we do know that the next morning brought victory over death. The king was well pleased when he yelled down to Daniel in that pit of death in verse 20. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered him in verse 22. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. And then verse 23 said that the king was overjoyed, and he gave orders to lift Daniel up out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. I love how Darius knew to give all the credit to God for this miracle. He made an edict demanding everyone to fear the Lord of Daniel, the God of Daniel. And then in verses 26 and 27, chapter 6, this pagan king says this about our God. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel 
from the power of the lions. Daniel's experience profoundly points us to Jesus, who gave himself over to death on a cross and then was buried in a borrowed tomb with a stone rolled over the mouth of it to seal him in. More miraculous than God shutting the mouths of the lions, God overcame the power of the roaring lion, Satan, death itself, by raising Jesus from the dead. Like in the fiery furnace, another angel dressed in white and glowing radiantly appeared to three women who came to this tomb in Mark chapter 15. And the angel told them that Jesus was not there. He is risen just as he said that he would. Death couldn't hold Jesus because he was found innocent in the sight of the Father. An unblemished lamb sacrificed his atonement for the sin of all mankind. When the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom at Jesus' death, I can just kind of hear the echo of King Darius' words in Mark 1.11 when God audibly declared, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You see, the Daniel paradox points us to the divine paradox of the cross. The reality that the victory of God was won in an act of self-giving love, which at face value looked like utter defeat. What was true of Daniel when he was lifted up out of the pit is now true of us. No wound is found on us because we have trusted in the saving work of God through Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And now that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit of God, is offered to you and me as we follow Jesus as Lord. To follow him seems crazy to the world, an utterly paradoxical life. Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 1.25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than any human strength. So I, I want to ask us today what the Daniel paradox begs us to consider. Are you willing to do what no one else wants to do, or even deems wise, in order to get something that everyone wants? Do you want to be strong? You must boast about your weakness. Do you want to be exalted? You must be willing to be brought low. Do you want to be great? You must be willing to be a servant and as humble as a child. And do you want to live in victory? Well, then you must die to yourself. Whether you're 20 or 90, it still requires faith to live this way. And if I'm honest, these things sound really nice, but, <clears throat> but they're so difficult to live out. I don't like to boast in my weakness. I begged God, and I've told you guys so many times, I've begged him to remove depression from my life, but he hasn't, and he's assured me that when I am weak, he is strong. I hate being brought low, especially when I feel accused or misunderstood, but I trust that God's exaltation is greater than any human accolade I could ever receive. Serving the ones who seem to be my enemies requires the humility that only the Holy Spirit can give. And dying to self, being okay with not getting my way, agreeing with God when he says no to what I think I really want, 
following where he leads, even if it's to really difficult and hard places, why in the world, friends, would we want to live this way? Well, Jesus told us in John 10, verse 10, that he came to give us life, life in the full, abundant life, and we live it together in this upside-down way as a part of the people of God. And we do it because we know how the story ends. We saw God described in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, as the ancient of days. With Jesus coming to him and given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. A kingdom that shall never be destroyed. This is the kingdom that Jesus brought to us and invites us into as his kingdom ambassadors. We must remember that this world is not our home. And even though the nations rage and the kingdoms around us rise and fall, there's still only one king who reigns over us all. So I want us to close today in worship together, pledging our allegiance and our trust in the ancient of days that Daniel describes. So let's stand, we'll sing this together, and then I'll pray.